Our Heavenly Father, it is amazing to us that the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ has, have paid our ransom. What amazing love that you have bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, that, Father, the Lord Jesus would give his own life, shed his blood, suffer in such horrible ways to redeem us to yourself, to bring us out of darkness into light. And Father, we marvel at that love and we pray that it would not stop there, just the appreciation of that tremendous love that you have bestowed upon us. But we know your desire is that that love would flow through us and impact the lives of others, uh, both those who are believers and those who are not believers, and that they would come to faith as well. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us this morning, that your words would come through, uh, that the scriptures that are shared, the thoughts that are brought forth uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit might impact each one of our lives and that it that would bring the change that you desire and that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. Um, I know the Matthews you know, miss the fellowship. It's a, they, they, we've had communications with them. We're looking forward to seeing them. They miss this fellowship uh, terribly. They really appreciated being part uh, of this body of believers, this community. And so we're hoping to take a little bit of the tremendous love uh, that is here for them and, uh, and share it with them when we go and visit. So um, a little bit of my background, growing up, um, probably until I was uh, well into my teenage years, I had zero knowledge of the Bible and very little exposure to Christianity. I've shared with, uh, this with some of you before, uh, and some of you can relate to this. Some of you are in a similar situation. My first real contact with Christians happened when I was about roughly 16 years old. And I met a young man named Eddie Garland uh, who had just recently become a Christian, maybe perhaps a few weeks or maybe a few months before. And he made a concerted effort to share with me about the Lord Jesus Christ, even though from the very beginning I made it clear to him that I had my own religion. I was very happy with it. I had no desire to change but he kept sharing the gospel with me. And he also made a point of inviting me out to concerts, to home Bible studies, to events where I would meet other Christians. And although on the outwardly I was very offended by the fact that he was trying so hard to convert me, um, there was, on the inside, there was something that drew me that I just couldn't resist. And that was the love that I could see that was going on, that, 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 uh, each of the, that Eddie and his Christian friends felt for each other is something that was palpable, something that was uh, real and inescapable. And it was something that kept drawing me back to those gatherings and, and to Eddie, even though I got a tremendous amount of flack from my friends and my family for having interest in a different religion, in a religion different than what I had been brought up in. Um, and really, the mystery of that, what I consider to be really an uncommon love, because it was uncommon because I could understand if, the people, if those people shared uh, a similar culture or a similar background, uh, I could understand it, but, but really, they, they were very diverse. 
very diverse backgrounds, very diverse walks of life. And really, to me, it seemed the only thing they had in common was their faith. And yet they loved being together and spending time together. And I encountered that same, that same kind of love when I went to college in a Christian group that I met there. And that was when I finally uh, understood, really grasped the gospel and became a believer. So that's kind of an introduction to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12. And uh, if you have a Bible, please turn there. In, the, in your pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, it is page nine, pages 947 and 948 in your red pew Bible. We're going to particularly focus on verses 9 and 10. Ken mentioned this morning that we've been studying the book of Romans and really, the presentation uh, of the gospel uh, that the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Romans, uh, I think most of you would agree with me, is marvelous. He, he talks about, he presents um, why the gospel is essential, and he also talks about why it works and how it works. Now, it's certainly great to understand the gospel, but it's far more important to receive the gospel and to live it out. The context and major theme, uh, particularly of, verse, of uh, chapters 12 to 15 of Romans, is living out our faith. And Romans 12, which we're going to look at today, gives us a picture of what the gospel looks like in real life. So let's go ahead and read, starting at verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, not to think of, to everyone among you, sorry, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So jumping straight down to verse 9, you'll notice that Paul says there, let love be genuine. If you have another version, perhaps the New King James, it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now the Greek word there is anhypokritos. I worked hard to figure out how to pronounce that properly. It's translated hypocrisy, and it's the same Greek word that's used of the masks that were, that were worn by actors on a stage. Um, those masks did not reflect the true character or emotion of those actors. Uh, it was just something that showed the, the role or the emotion that they were playing for that particular performance. I think what Paul is saying here is that our love shouldn't be something that we just put on. It should be authentic, sincere, 
Now Paul goes on in verses 9 and 10 to describe what he means by genuine love. Now we understand, most of us, from having read the Bible, that, war- that, that love, as, as far as the Bible talks about it, isn't just a warm and a fuzzy feeling. Uh, there's definitely emotion involved, uh, but it isn't just about feelings. Biblical love, as the, uh, as, uh, the b- love as the Bible defines it, is the decision of the will in response to a command of the Lord. Uh, and it generally involves an outward manifestation or display of some kind. Now, God knows uh, that we love Him because He can see that love in our hearts. Uh, people don't have that ability. Love has to be communicated uh, through words and reinforced by actions for other people to perceive and appreciate it. Remember what it says in John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave. And that reminds us that God demonstrated his love or showed his love in some way so that it could be communicated effectively to us. So looking at verse 9, you may question the need for such an exhortation, uh, particularly in regards to Christians. You may be tempted to say, you know, that kind of thing could never happen in a church. That thing could never happen in First Colony Bible Chapel. But Paul would not have uh, written down these words and they would not have been recorded in Scripture if they were unnecessary. So we have to make the assumption that there is a reason behind them. Now, in fact, we mentioned about the, the definition we gave of biblical love, that understanding that we have about love being primarily an act of the will can actually, in a way, backfire. So what I mean by that is, it can make us think that it's okay or expected to put on a display of love when it isn't real. Now, most of us have experienced or observed love expressed by others that wasn't genuine. And if we're honest... Um, we have all expressed love to others that we knew in our hearts was not really sincere. And that certainly isn't what God intends for us. Now, the classic example of hypocritical love in the Bible is Judas Iscariot, particularly at the time when he betrays the Lord Jesus with a kiss. But another New Testament example that comes to mind for me and perhaps for you as well is recorded in Acts chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. So Acts chapter 5, verse 1, goes like this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. So Ananias and Sapphira were members of the church in Jerusalem. The sacrificial action that we've just read about was not original. It was something, it was stimulated by something that they had observed in a man named Barnabas. Now, Barnabas had sold property and given the proceeds of that property to the apostles so that they could distribute it to other believers who had need. 
Now, outwardly, Ananias and Sapphira followed Barnabas' example. Uh, they may have even been concerned about the well-being of the believers in Jerusalem, but their, but their inward motivation for their action was all wrong. They, they cared more about projecting a good image than about meeting the needs of, the, uh, of other believers. And their actions really were not based on faith in God's provision, but in trust in their own resources. And that may have been one of the reasons why they weren't willing to part with all of the money. Um, the de- their demonstration of love, essentially, although it wasn't intended to be that way, it became meaningless because it was mingled with selfish motives. They probably didn't even realize the hypocrisy in their actions or the impact that it would have on others. Now, the truth is that we also can be blind to hypocrisy sometimes. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul is exhorting the believers in Rome and also us as well to actively guard against hypocrisy in expressing love, particularly to other believers. Because as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, it will eventually come to light and it could have severe consequences. So what makes love hypocritical? Well, primarily, uh, it's the condition of the heart. Considering the example of Ananias and Sapphira, selfishness certainly makes love hypocritical. When we're more concerned about our image or our own interest in caring for our fellow believers, uh, it can be hypocritical. Verse Paul, in, in verse 3, Paul says this, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. So that gives us another clue. When you see yourself as being better than the one to whom you are expressing love, um, it's probably insincere and always wrong. In verse 16, Paul echoes, uh, Paul repeats the same kind of thought. He says, Do not be haughty or high-minded, but associate with the lowly and the humble. Genuine or sincere love requires humility and an objective opinion of ourselves in relation to others. A good way to judge the sincerity of our love is to honestly ask, what do I think about that person? Do I see them the same or having the same value as myself or do I see them as beneath me in some way? Perhaps because of what they know, what they believe, maybe their background or their lifestyle. Unfortunately, hypocritical love may be more common than we care to admit. The scripture tells us that by nature, human beings are inherently selfish and that we love to exalt ourselves. While those who trust Christ uh, do have a new life and a new nature, praise God for that, we understand that there is an ongoing battle with the selfish old nature. And we shouldn't be naive about that. So we know that genuine love is not hypocritical. In verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us three additional characteristics, attributes, qualities of genuine love. First, it is holy. Second, it shows brotherly affection. And third, it seeks to honor others. Now, in general, our society has a very skewed and mixed up perspective of love. It exalts love that is without any discernment. Love that accepts and celebrates just about everything regardless of how perverse or evil it may be. Genuine love is very discriminating, even to the extreme. It makes a sharp distinction in its attitude towards good and evil. 
The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says this, Abhor or detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Genuine love does not tolerate evil attitudes or behavior in itself, in oneself, or endorse it in others. At the same time, it holds tight to what is good. That word there for hold tight means to be glued to. That's how tight we're to hold on to that. Genuine love also reflects the character, the holy character of God. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. He says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle Peter echoes the same thought in 1 Peter 1 verse 22. He says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Genuine love also shows brotherly affection. John Piper says the following in speaking about this verse, Brotherly affection, that word there is Philadelphia, is the affection of a family that comes with long familiarity and deep bonds. Of course you can have squabbles and get mad, but let some bully pick on your brother and the family affection shows a powerful side. Or let one of the family members get a life-threatening sickness or even die and there will be a kind of tears that do not come for others. Note that Paul purposely chooses the term brotherly affection because it's infused with heartfelt emotion. Genuine love is committed, it's loyal, it's dependable, and it's devoted. Genuine love is willing to be humble and take a lower place so that others may be honored. John Piper says this, honoring someone is treating them with your deeds and your words as worthy of your service. He continues, you don't necessarily need to have affection for someone to honor them. Honoring is separate from how you feel about them. It also doesn't depend on whether that person deserves the honor. That person may do things that are not particularly honorable. They may even do things that are dishonorable. But that doesn't change things. We are to outdo in showing honor. We do it out of love and sincere appreciation for the Lord. Now our natural tendency when it comes to outdoing one another is to display our superior abilities or talents. We generally tend to seek greater honor for ourselves. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is encouraging exactly the opposite here. He's saying, go ahead and compete, but when you do it, do it to honor one another. Where there is sincere love, the winner isn't the one who gains the most honor, it's the one who gives away the most honor. So why is genuine love so important? Why does the Bible speak about that? Well, first, I believe genuine love builds trust and, and, and strengthens relationships between believers. Uh, scripture presents a number of different metaphors for the church, that is, the group of believers, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those metaphors include a family, a building, and a body. 
Now all these images convey the fact that there is an interdependence between members of the church. There should be a unity. There should be a cohesion. Now for that to happen, there needs to be a high level of trust and confidence. Genuine, sincere love visibly demonstrated through great and small acts reinforces trust. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, of course. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Authenticity is a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. Hypocrisy of any kind should have no place in a believer, especially when it comes to expressing love to another member of the family. Now, when there's hypocrisy in love, either at the source, that is the heart, or in the manifestation, how it appears on the outside, it erodes trust, it causes doubt, it undermines unity and destroys cohesion. Second, genuine love gives credibility to our witness and it glorifies God. We all want to be loved sincerely, genuinely with an understanding of who we are and where we are at. And that's the way that God loves us. If we make the claim to be children of God, then we should love one another the way that He loves us. According to the Bible, love is the main attribute or characteristic of what that defines and what it means to be a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's even a song about it. Most of us have probably sung it or at least heard it. They will know we are Christians by our love. Now that song is based on the Lord's words in John chapter 13, verse 35. He said this, They will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. When the Lord says, if you have love for one another, that if is not conditional. It should really be a since. It's not the idea that having love for one another is optional. Rather, our sincere love for one another is evidence or proof that we are in fact truly his disciples. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, Paul says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage reminds us that God gives us his word to accomplish something in his children. He expects us to take it in and respond. So having considered this passage in Romans chapter 12, what is expected of us in terms of a response? Well, I would suggest the first thing we need to do is to accept the standard to which we're being called. Now, it's easy to claim that this is an impossible standard and that it's ridiculous or unfair to expect anyone to attain to it. But these are the words of God given through his apostle and we cannot choose to ignore them. The second is we need to honestly assess where we stand against this standard. And we need to be prepared to repent for wrong actions and attitudes. Now, I know I fall short 
But that's a personal assessment each one of us needs to make. And that assessment is not to condemnation. The Word of God reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's simply an understanding that having saved us, there is a plan and a purpose. There is a higher standard to which we're called. And where there is a standard, we understand that our God is gracious. Our Father is kind and our Father has made a provision. If He asks us to do something, you can be guaranteed that He has made a provision for it. And that's where the next step comes in. The next step is to realize, honestly, that we cannot attain this standard by our own human effort. Genuine love is not something that we can work up. At least it's not something that we can sustain through pure human effort. We need the love of Christ in our hearts before we can express the holy love of God to other people. And being able to express that love comes from first accepting and embracing God's great love for us. That was the love that motivated the Lord Jesus to go to the cross and lay down his life and shed his blood. And genuine love, it's also sacrificial. And it's, only, it's something that can only come from a life that has been transformed through the working of the Holy Spirit. And that process is found in verses 1 and 2 of Romans. I encourage you to turn there. We can't accomplish a sacrificial life or love, but we can yield to the Holy Spirit. And that's what that process involves. There's two parts to it. The first part involves presenting or yielding. And yielding simply, it, the, the idea there is to allow the Spirit of God to have control, to take over. And the next step in verse 2 is renewal of the mind. And that renewal causes us to reject conformity to the world and it transforms us so that we are able to understand and do the will of God. We can't renew our own minds, but we can allow or facilitate it through exposure to the Word of God and through the influence of other believers. Now the influence and mentorship of other believers is a key element that really cannot be overstated. The Apostle Paul was certainly qualified to write these words and preach this message because his love was genuine. It was sacrificial. We see that in the scriptures. But the Apostle Paul did not start that way. Acts chapter 9 describes Paul's life and lifestyle when he first became a Christian. His goal was to convince others that Jesus was the Christ and his approach was arguing with others with the support of the scriptures. Paul was a brilliant man. He probably won most of his debates. But we don't see much of the, light of the love of the Lord Jesus in that ministry. Eventually, the Bible tells us that Paul actually had to be sent away because he was a threat to himself and to other believers. But over the years, and that's several years, maybe a decade, he changed. He changed into a man that was motivated by love. He no longer tried to argue people into the faith. Instead, he won them to the faith by consistently demonstrating the sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus. And what's more, he produced disciples that did the same thing. What caused that transformation in Paul? Now certainly, we know that he studied the scriptures and we know that he had a deep communion with the Lord Jesus. But there was something else or perhaps better stated, there was someone else 
Paul had a great mentor in the Apostle Barnabas. This is how the Bible describes Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, who was also called by the Apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Joseph was nicknamed son of encouragement by the, apostle because, by the apostles because they recognized this gift or quality about him. He was someone who genuinely cared for the well-being of other believers and did what he could to encourage them. Now the Bible doesn't explicitly state this, but I believe that as Saul or Paul spent time with Barnabas, that quality of genuine love rubbed off and Paul became more and more like Christ. I think the lesson that we take from this is that we need to be discriminating and deliberate about who we choose as role models and influences in our lives. Now, there are some other wonderful results and evidences of a transformed life. We don't have time to dig into them, but I will mention them and you can study them for yourself. In verses 3 to 5, we see that one of the benefits or the results of a transformed life is that we begin to think objectively about ourselves in relation to others. We see ourselves as members of a body of Christ, that we have a function to perform that contributes to the health and growth of the body. In verses 6 to 8, we read that we receive gifts, abilities and talents from God. And we don't ignore those gifts and we don't use them for our own benefit or to lift up or exalt ourselves, we develop those gifts so that we can put them to use for the benefit of others. But really the greatest result or, or evidence of a transformed life is the love that fills our hearts and it's that same love that flows out and impacts others for time and for eternity. So in conclusion, I hope the scriptures that we've read and the thoughts that we've shared this morning have had an impact on you. I hope that they have given you a desire to live that sacrificial life that manifests the holy character of God, the holy love of God. Now most of us here will admit that we don't attain to the standard. We don't meet that standard. But the answer is not reformation through human effort. Rather, it's the transformation that that is accomplished through the renewal of our minds, through the word of God and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you're not there. Perhaps you're not there this morning and you don't know whether you have the Holy Spirit. Well, the good news is that God in His sovereign grace has made a wonderful provision for us to receive the Holy Spirit, to receive new life through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is the key. We can't do it ourselves, but we can receive the provision that God has made for us by sacrificing his son. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was the only one who ever lived a perfect life of genuine love. What it speaks of here. He was the only one who lived that life consistently throughout his entire life. And he died to give us sin, sorry, he died to give us forgiveness of sin, and he rose again to give us new life. Not just an ordinary kind of life, but a transformed life that can manifest God's marvelous love. If you haven't trusted in Him, then I would encourage you to do that this morning. The only way that we can live this kind of life, this transformed life, is when we are connected to the Lord Jesus, when His Spirit dwells in us. 
And if you have questions about this, perhaps this is the first time you're hearing it, or maybe you've heard it before, but you really haven't understood it, one of the elders would be more than happy to speak with you and answer, or at least try to answer your questions from the scriptures. So as I mentioned before, the the first time I heard the gospel, it was something that was very strange to me, and it may seem strange to you. Christians, really, they seem strange to me. And the love that they shared was something that I simply could not understand. But looking back, after having been a Christian now for well over 30 years, I know that what the Bible talks about is real. And when you receive and experience the love of God, it changes, it literally changes everything. I have experienced the transformation that the Bible talks about. And I've seen it in the lives of others. And my prayer for you, if you haven't yet, is that you would experience it as well. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the transforming power of the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the provision that you have made through his death and his resurrection. Thank you that not eternal life is available to us, but it's not just a future life. It's a life that we can experience now. It's a life that the Lord Jesus lived on earth, a life of genuine love. And we seek to live and pattern that life, Father, so that we might be a blessing to others. We ask, Father, I ask if there is anyone that is listening that has not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus that they would do so, that you would speak to them. And for those of us who are, who have been walking on that road, whether it's for a short time or for a long time, Father, that you would help us to, to trust you, to allow your word to work in us, to allow your spirit to work in us so that we can experience this transformed life and manifest and demonstrate the love of God. We ask this in Jesus' name.